welcome to the Profit Powerhouse Podcast, the ultimate resource for business success and growth. I'm your host, Glenn Poulos, and I'm thrilled to be joining you on this exciting journey. Currently, I hold the position of VP and GM of NWS Canada. Additionally, I take pride in being the author of the critically acclaimed book, Never Sit in the Lobby. Throughout this podcast, my mission is crystal clear, to equip you with the strategies and insights you need to not only establish a strong presence in front of your clients, but also to take meaningful action and maintain that position. After all, being a pleasure to do business with is the key to fostering lasting connections in the corporate world. Together, we'll explore the art of not just building a successful and profitable company, but also cultivating a high-performing team that's capable of achieving remarkable results. Whether you're an aspiring entrepreneur, a seasoned business professional, or anyone looking to excel in the world of commerce, this podcast is tailored to help you thrive. If you're eager to be part of the conversation, I encourage you to visit my website, navigate to the podcast section where you can sign up and stay updated and participate in the show. Our episodes typically run for a duration of 30 to 40 minutes, ensuring you get a compact yet insightful dose of valuable information. So get ready to unleash your profit powerhouse potential. Join me on this podcast as we delve into the strategies, stories, and secrets that will drive your success. Remember, your journey to becoming an influential person and prosperous business leader starts right now. Welcome to the Profit Powerhouse Podcast, the show where we explore the strategies, insights, and stories of the influential experts, thinkers, and leaders in the field of economics, business, and entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Glenn Poulos, and I'm thrilled to have you join us for another enlightening episode. Today, we have the privilege of hosting a true powerhouse in the field of economics and global strategy. Our guest, Kevin Cloudon, is the chief global strategist at the renowned Milken Institute. Kevin's extensive experience spans a wide range of economic topics, from regional economies and innovative clusters to trade policy, technology-based development, and much more. Kevin, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Awesome. That's great. So can you give us a little background on, on how you ended up um, where you are today and, um, you know, ended up in the role that you're in now? It sounds very exciting. I've got lots of questions lined up for you, but maybe just a little background on what led you to where we are today. Well, absolutely. I mean, in, in to some degree, it happened a bit by chance. My background is actually in a combination of economic geography and international economics. I did uh, uh graduate degree in economic geography from the University of Chicago a number of years ago. And I actually wound up coming out of uh, uh, coming out of graduate school, actually taught, I uh, actually taught at Santa Monica College. I even, uh, in the midst of it, even taught a little bit of high school. And then I went back and I went to the LSE. And when I came back uh, to, uh, when I was done, I actually wound up discovering that uh, the uh, I wanted to try going into business uh, and the business side of things and actually wound up spending a bit of time where I was, uh, where I actually, of all things, wound up working with a video game company. And they were supposed wow. to, and, uh, what happened is that uh, they wound up having a bit of a dispute between uh, two of the senior officers on what, uh, where I was supposed to report and what I was supposed to do. And after a few years there, I actually got recruited by a uh, um, the then head of regional economics at the Milken Institute, Ross Duvall, who was looking for someone who actually could 
work on a new project they had years ago called the Los Angeles Economy Project and doing economic analysis and job strategy for the city of LA, which at the time didn't really have one. And so that was my first big project years ago. I actually wound up doing a lot in building up uh, our presence here in the, what was called the California Center and expanding that into regional economics. And over the years, I've done a, a number of different uh, larger projects, uh, one of which I'm actually going to be returning back to in many ways, which is focusing on issues of entrepreneurship, uh, small businesses, how they actually grow, how you create ecosystems that let them grow. And one of the big projects I did was something called the Partnership for Lending in Underserved Markets, which was uh, about how you get access to capital for small businesses, SMEs especially, who can't get it otherwise, you know, who are running into barriers uh, because of uh, ethnicity, because of geography, because of general access to capital issues. And the other thing that I've consistently done over the years, including work in California and Arizona and Florida and Pennsylvania and New England, and yes, even in Australia and Southeast Asia and even a bit in Europe, on technology-based development and how do you create clusters of innovation centers and places that you can actually grow and thrive. And that's been a large part, a, a sort of a driver of what I've done in this idea that there is no better way to create jobs and create opportunities than to have a small business grow into a mid-sized business and bring everybody up along with it. Wow. So how do these um, clusters of innovation and trade patterns and skilled labor concentrations and how do they impact the development of regional economies and, uh, you know, both globally, nationally? I mean, well, a lot of it is really just getting a critical mass that you have to recognize that there are multiple different groups who have to work together. That if you just depend on any one of them, that it doesn't quite come together. And there, the, normally what you have is that you have the local governments who are involved and say, look, we want this, we're going to facilitate this, we're going to, whether you do things like what Utah did, which is you do a fund of funds to help matching investments, you do things like what you saw gradually in the research triangle in North Carolina, which in spite of everybody saying, oh, it's this great recent success. No, it actually started in the 50s. And there was a conscious effort of working with business with uh, uh, one of the great the companies that particularly focused on and developed there was IBM when uh, they actually had their research center there, which eventually they sold to Lenovo. But you had that and you had pharmaceuticals, and you had actively targeting industries, but then going and working with the universities and saying, OK, we want to produce graduates who actually know these skills, whether it's at the two-year schools or the four-year schools, matching them, being able to build that and being able to actually take uh, that and build up an ecosystem because it's the truth is, is that businesses don't want to invest in a place. They don't feel comfortable staying in a place unless they know they have access to the workers. They unless they feel like the, the market and the environment's welcoming, unless they have space and if they have access to capital. So that means especially, you know, developing venture capital environments is accepting risk, accepting failure, accepting chances and knowing that people can do that. One of the great things the, all the innovative centers in the world have really done is that they've accepted risk and they've allowed it and they've allowed people to take chances and fail. And this is true everywhere in the world and the places where the most entrepreneurial matter. And when you mention trade is that the other thing 
that I've spent years on in terms of, especially on small and mid-sized businesses, but in trade policy issues and modernizing exports and issues like that, is that I spent several years chairing an advisory council from the Department of Commerce that was explicitly focused on getting SMEs the access they, to capital they needed and the tools they needed to actually be able to grow and export. And that's a key thing in these clusters is that it's not just about domestic demand, it's about where's the middle class now? And it's global. And that's true, not just in the US, that's even true in China, that's true in India, that's true in Britain, that's true in Germany, that's true in Brazil, it doesn't matter where you are. And ultimately, that is something that any great center needs to recognize is that you're tied to the world, you can't just be focused inward. Wow. So in terms of like young people coming up and um, you talked about schools and producing graduates, are they are we keeping up with the demand or is the is the input meeting the meeting the demand uh, or do we need to get more more kids in uh, in school and uh, or is there an oversupply or where are we at in that part? part well, of the there, there, there are competing problems at the same time. The first okay. is we actually have a as what would essentially be a degree inflation problem which is that a lot of times companies want the higher degree they want, whether it's they start with a bachelor's and then they want a master's and then they want a PhD even. And very often those degrees don't have the applied skills. They don't actually have what's needed to take that and apply it in the real world. And one of the things that's been a huge problem, especially true for small companies, but it's been true for lots of companies is that they go, they hire somebody, let's say they hire somebody from an Ivy League because they're going on reputation and connections. And then they discover that the, somebody they hire doesn't have the real world matching skills matching. They've got somebody who's smart. They've got somebody who's interesting, but it takes more effort. It doesn't actually fit in. And in California for years, I spent a lot of time talking with the manufacturers and I've had this conversation. I actually have these same conversations in Asia and I've had them in um in, I had them in Georgia and Florida. I had them in a number of various parts of the U.S. and elsewhere. And what consistently shows up is that it's really about skills matching. And this can be a two-year degree or a technical certificate. This could be a four-year applied degree. But it's not just enough to have a STEM degree if that STEM degree doesn't have the specific skill set or the specific matching to what these companies are doing and looking to hire for. And the other thing that's really significant about this is that in a lot of different sectors, there's actually a generational problem. You have a lot of these baby boomers, particularly who had skilled engineering degrees, skilled applied degrees, went through, quite honestly, had time to get trained on the job, and they're retiring. And companies, as they've modernized, as they've automated, as they don't need as many workers, they haven't hired the replacements. And so now you've got a situation where a lot of different companies all over the place are looking for those skills. And one of the interesting ones in aerospace, because that's a big one, is that there's actually a gateway that in California that's really benefited California, but it's also benefited in other parts of the country, which is NASA. People actually go to work for JPL or they work for Ames. They spend a couple of years there and then they jump ship to get the big salaries now that they have those applied skills. Wow. Um, so one of the things that I was reading about some of your background stuff, um, I just recently sold my business to um, a very large but uh, 
uh, minority-owned business in North America. And I noticed you, you're involved with the Partnership for Lending. And can you ex expand on that a little bit, what that is and, uh, and how it impacts small businesses, minority-owned businesses in North America? Absolutely. Uh, so what happened was that this actually came out of conversation uh, that my uh, colleague Matt Horton and I had had with a series of stakeholders in L.A. where we were looking at coming out of the Great Recession. Why isn't capital going, uh, particularly not just to small businesses, but particularly to ones owned by African-American and Latino owners and Latino? Latina as well. And what we found was that there were there was a loss of capital. There's actually, you know, a lot of cases because of the uh, not just the financial crisis, but also the subprime mortgages that people didn't have access to that in a whole bunch of the lending institutions that actually did this lending went away. And so I actually had a conversation out of this that we built on with uh, Maria Contreras-Sweet, who became the head of the U.S. Small Business Administration. I actually had this conversation before then. And when she became head of the SBA, she came back and we, we looked at this and we went in depth in this. And so myself and Matt and uh, Aaron Bentru, who is a former colleague with the Institute, and, and, and Carolyn Schulman and a few others, what we all did is that we looked at this and we said, okay, what's going on, what's the problem, and how do we address it? And we looked at it at a pilot standpoint, going in depth in LA, because we were in LA, and because we could see it acutely in LA, and in Baltimore, because Baltimore had had the Freddie Gray riots and had a, and located near DC and had a very clear and absolute problem in terms of capital and lending not going even to parts of the city that should have been thriving. And what we consistently have found is that people are afraid of what they don't know. They don't recognize where the actual risk is. And they and know your customer, which is something that particularly for minority-owned businesses, but also just really for most SMEs, is gotten more expensive because of regulations. It's gotten harder. And it takes work. And Anything that you can do, anything you can do to help that and to minimize the perception of risk, to reduce, you know, to do what the SBA does, where they essentially back loans, they guarantee loans so that people are willing to go in and do the lending and not be afraid of losing their shirts, doing this lending, of working with lenders and say you have various, uh, you know, community development financial institutions, CDFIs, who can partner with larger banks who know the customers. And it's really ultimately, that's true any way you look at it. And even in a modern era, you know, where we have online lending, financial technology firms, things like that, in the end, it's still about how do you know your customer and how do you link that customer to this lending and to the products that actually make sense for them. And that's been hard and it still is. But it's one of the most important ways to actually grow businesses, especially businesses who have been hit hard. And in the African-American community, especially, have been hit hard going back to 2008 and 2009. Right. Wow, that's fascinating. The, um, the other thing that jumped out at me was your golden, your report, Golden Opportunity with China. And uh, I think relative to investment in, I think, California, right? And how... Uh, how current is that uh, report and how, how important is it right now and uh, how relevant, I guess, and 
Um, well, the lesson of it's relevant, uh, not necessarily for China. And the reason I say right. this is because what happened is that when President Xi took over in China, he looked at the flows of capital that were going out of the country and he put curbs on them. Now, there are some very, very good structural reasons that this happened, but as far as California is concerned, as far as the rest of the U.S. is concerned, that what happened is that the capital flows, especially into real estate and construction and things like that, really peaked around 2015, and by 2017, they were diminishing. Now, obviously, you also had a change in politics. You had the trade disputes between President Xi and President Trump, but a what it really comes down to is that the larger issues in terms of attracting that capital, in terms of looking at it, and, uh, and this is something that I've worked with uh, in different levels with a number of different governments in different circumstances, is that you want to see, okay, what a comparative advantage do you have? And in the fact is that California, especially it was interesting, Southern California was viewed as attractive. It's got a huge foreign-born population. It's got a lot of more cultural acceptance. People were willing to try and invest in different things. It's a real design center. There's an opportunity to invest and then take your product back to a home country. And, and for the Chinese, what they found is that there was a great deal more acceptance and opportunity there. But that is true of the Japanese previously. That's been true of the Koreans. That's been true. Uh, we're seeing this now with Vietnamese. We're seeing this with a number of different groups where it, it's really important for California, though, to say what barriers are there, local bit regulatory barriers, state barriers. How long does it take to get something done? Because the one thing that Texas has done amazingly well that continues to show up over and over again is it's a lot faster to get something executed and done in Texas. And so <laughs> you sure. have to look, yeah, and you have to look at it and say, well, where does California have, you know, has more students coming out of its universities, it's got more talent already there, it's got a better venture capital environment, it's got all these different things. Then you need to look at the barriers and say, can you keep those from actually stopping businesses from coming in. And that's not just true for California. That can be true for anywhere and balancing those those advantages out. And it's not it's important is that a number of the places that attract businesses because they're cheap then lose them because these investments because they're somewhere else cheaper or somewhere else that they can get in a better deal or they can expand more or they have more access to people and more access to local capital. And all of those factor in, and it's not just about getting those investments, it's about building off of those and making something long-term. Right. Awesome. Well, finally, if you could offer one piece of advice to aspiring economists or individuals interested in the field of economics, what would that be? Figure out the part of it that you like and you want to be involved in. Now, I'm really a policy economist. That's, you know, I have done econometrics in the past. I have done a lot of statistics and a lot of data analysis. But what I found is that you have to know your audience. Now, a number of cases, people want things where they want that statistical analysis. There's a real demand uh, that cycles up and down for econometricians, especially. But for people who you know, that ultimately who read these things, whether they're in businesses, whether they're policymakers, whether they are investors, 
they want something that they can digest. And that skill that really you want to cultivate and have ultimately is that ability to actually talk to your audience and write to your audience. And if you can't do that, then you're going to find that whatever you do, no matter how brilliant, no matter how well done it is, unless you are a savant, unless you are somebody who you know is gunning for a Nobel Prize, ultimately you run the risk that whatever brilliant piece you've written just sits on a shelf. And if you want to be impactful, figure out how do you connect with your audience? Who is your audience? How do your skills tie in? And make sure you do that. Well, that's great. Well, I want to thank you, Kevin, for sharing your uh, your insights and expertise on the Profit Powerhouse podcast. I really appreciate your time. And um, sorry, I'm getting an alarm there. <laughs> and, uh, and sharing your wealth of knowledge on economics and, uh, and how it relates to the U.S. economy. It's been really interesting. And uh, to my listeners, don't forget to connect with us on LinkedIn, where you can stay updated on our latest episodes and continue the conversation. So until next time, Kevin. Stay empowered and profit-driven. Thank you very much. Thank you. Best to everyone. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to another insightful episode of the Profit Powerhouse Podcast. Your support and engagement means the world to us. If you're brimming with expertise and eager to join us, navigate to my website at glenpoolis.com forward slash podcast and go to the Be a Guest section to connect with us. Don't keep this information to yourself. Please share this podcast on your favorite social media platforms to empower your network with the strategies and wisdom you've gained. Your feedback fuels our growth. Please take a moment to rate and review the Profit Powerhouse podcast wherever you listen. Your input helps us to continually refine our content to serve you better. Remember, our mission is your success. We've committed to providing you with the tools and insights to drive your business forward, and we're excited to have you on this journey with us. To stay up to date on the latest episodes, hit the subscribe button and let's stay connected. Reach out to me on social media and continue the conversation and stay inspired. For resources and information, visit my website at glenpoolis.com. And before we sign off, remember, I'm Glenn Poulos and reminding you that your potential as a business leader is limitless. Thank you for being a part of this podcast where your success story begins.